Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6. I've been in prayer now for a while. I mean, I've been preaching on the subject of prayer now for a while. And uh, hopefully you're starting to gather some things about it. And uh, that takes me to the story of a couple of guys. One who was uh, attending the church where the preacher had been preaching on prayer for a long time, kind of like I have. And he sat out there listening to it week after week and uh, kind of felt like he was starting to get a handle on some things. And so he went to work and uh, kind of started fashioning himself as an expert on prayer because they had been preaching on it so long in church. And so he went to work and during the break time he was sitting at a table with a buddy of his who didn't go to church anywhere. And uh, the church guy said to him... Uh, you know, we've been studying prayer at our church for a while, and he said, I'll promise you I know more about prayer than you do. And the unchurched guy, <laughs> well, I won't tell you exactly what he was thinking, but he said, uh, yeah, you probably do, which was a backhanded way of saying, I don't really want to get into this conversation. The church guy didn't let it go. He said, no, I'm telling you, I, we've been doing it. And he told him a few things. He said, I, I promise you I know more about prayer than you do. And the guy said, yeah, you probably do. So what? He said, I know so much more about prayer than you than I'm willing to put money on it. I'll put $20 on the table that says, I know more about prayer than you do. And the other guy said, whatever. He said, here's the deal. If you can recite to me the Lord's Prayer, I'll give you that $20 bill. Well, now the unchurched guy said, hey, man, I know the Lord's Prayer. This is an easy $20. And so the church guy's just, just staring at him like, come on, man, show me what you got. So the other guy says, all right, if you'll leave me alone, I'll... he says, all right, $20, if you can recite the Lord's Prayer, it's all yours. The guy says, okay, here we go. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And the other guy went, Dadgummit, I didn't think you could do it. Here's your $20. <laughs> so how are you doing on the subject of prayer these days? Do you feel like with where we've been, you have a little different perspective or maybe a little more mature perspective on what prayer is, let me just ask it this way. Do you feel like you have an effective prayer life? Three preachers, Baptist preachers, you knew it had to be Baptist preachers, sitting around, and they're sitting in an office, and, you know, two things happen when Baptist preachers get together. Well, three. One of them is the law enforcement in the area takes note, all right? Three Baptist preachers get together, something's going wrong. Uh, but these guys get together and either they're going to talk about their churches and how much better their church is than the other guy's church, or they're going to get into some kind of theological uh, discussion that uh, is really intended to say, I'm much smarter than the other two guys are. And so in this particular case, these three Baptist preachers are sitting around and they start talking about prayer and especially about what effective prayer is. And so one of them says, and... Uh, you know, my dad used to say the first liar doesn't have a chance because the second one's going to blow him off the map. Well, the first one speaks up and he says, I found that the most effective way to pray, where I pray and I get the most results, is when I get out on my knees and it's just me and God and on my knees I pray. Another Baptist preacher looked at him and he said, no, you're crazy. 
He said, the most effective way to pray, when I found my prayers are most effective, is when I stand before God and I hold my arms open like this, and it's just like I'm reaching out to God, and he reaches down to me, and that's the most effective way to pray. The third guy says, no, you guys are not nearly as holy as I am. The best way to pray is just fall on your face before God, laying out, face down, on the floor, just you and God. He said, when I pray like that, it's like heaven moves. Well, in the room with these three Baptist hot air preacher guys is a telephone repairman. And he's listening to all of that stuff, thinking to him, he's praying as a matter of fact, God, thank you for not making me like these Baptist preachers. But at this point in the discussion, he's heard too much to just let it go. And so he says to them, you guys mind if I weigh in on this discussion? And they said, sure, go ahead. Not like it matters or anything, but go ahead. And he said, you know, what I found is the most effective prayers that I pray have been those times when I was up on the telephone pole and I've fallen off and I'm hanging there upside down. God hears those prayers every time. How effective is your prayer life? Now, what I want you to get from all of that is we haven't done these many weeks on prayer just as an academic exercise. Jesus very pointedly comes to this topic right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if you look at it and you open it up, the number of verses and all that, this falls roughly, if not exactly, right in the center of the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's no accident that Jesus is laying out a righteousness that surpasses the religious ethic of his day. And he says, in order to do that, you need to have a prayer life that matters. And so he starts off. And in the process of this discussion, he says, our Father. And immediately, he changes the structure of their thinking with that. First century Jewish life would have never expected someone to refer to God as Father. It just blows their mind. So he starts off with the relationship part of it, our Father. And then he ties that in and makes sure that we don't treat that loosely. Our Father, the one in the heavens, separated from us, but somehow willing to reach down in relationship to us. Our Father, the one in the heavens, let your name be holified. It's a point of character reflection. All of these things are pointing us to, the, to a positioning in prayer. He starts off by saying, Jesus does, when you pray, make sure that you get God in the right spot. Our Father, the one in the heavens, let your name be glorified, holified in my life. Let your kingdom come. In other words, it's not my agenda that matters. It's yours. Let your will be done, not mine, yours. It's a positioning thing. Then he turns and he starts having us in the second part of this model prayer talk about ourselves. Help me to trust you for the basic necessities of life. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our debts. And we deal with that part of us that comes up lacking. And now we come to this last petition. It's verse 13. And it's the one that says, And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Well, I have to tell you, as we come into this, 
This one also emphasizes the positioning thing that we're talking about with the others. We have to make sure that we always come to this recognizing that God is God and that we're not, that we're dependent on him. That's all implied in what's already been going on with this. And now we come to this last petition, the last part of it, and we find a difficult, difficult text when it comes to how to interpret it. Normally, we tend to look at this as God, get me out of trouble. I don't, wanna, I don't, I don't want you to you know, bear testimony to that, but how often is that the prayer that you pray? God, I, I'm in this mess. I, I remember one evangelist that I used to listen to uh, a little bit, and uh, he, he said, you know, I have the unique ability to work myself into problems that it would take a miracle for God to make it happen, and somehow I do it all the time. I get in these big, huge messes. I don't even try to do it. It just happens. I'm a professional mess maker in my life. How do you pray when that's you? Very possible that if we come in here today, somebody's sitting here or maybe listening on the Internet somewhere down the road after today for us, and and we hear this and we go, man, I'm that guy. I'm the one who's in such a mess. I don't know how to get out of this. Let me tell you something. A great way to pray is, God... I'm in a mess, get me out of this. That's a great prayer. But if we leave our prayer life at that, then we have, now hear me carefully, then we have a reactionary prayer life. We wait for something to go wrong, and then we ask God to fix it. Hear me say, it's okay to ask God to fix it. Matter of fact, it's a lot smarter to ask him to fix it than to say, well, I got myself into this, I'll get myself out of it. But Jesus takes us to a different point. He gets us to the point of being proactive at these junctures of our lives. So let's look at what we have here. This is, as I said, it's a difficult text for us theologically. We can fall into a hole, or as one friend of mine says, we can fall off the horse with this. And the fact is, we can fall off the horse on either side of this theologically. So let's look at it first. It's all tied to the word temptation. And lead us not into temptation. A couple of different ways Scripture uses this word. The first way that Scripture uses it on a regular basis is in a negative kind of a connotation. It is, temptation is a solicitation or an enticement to evil or to sin. You understand the word entice? We use it in fishing. You take a hook... And as far as I know, now I'm no great fisherman. We have some great fishermen in our church. But as far as I know, most fish, maybe no fish, if you throw a hook into the water, none of them are going to just bite it just for the sake of biting it. Most fish, as far as I know, if you swim by a hook and they're not going to say, hey, I would love to taste that. So what you have to do is you have to put stuff on it. If you put a live minnow on it, you're a better chance of catching a fish than with just a bare hook out there. Am I right or wrong, you fishermen, right? Okay? Now, some of you go fishing for catfish, and so you put something that a dog wouldn't eat on that thing. A cat would. A catfish especially would. Smell your boat up for weeks to come, but a catfish will say, man, mm, smells great. And so they bite it. It is an enticement. And some of you fish for bass and other things like that. So you use, well, what do we call those things? Those fake bait. 
lures. Think about the term. You're luring something to do something they might not ordinarily do. Okay? You get the word enticement? That's the picture of this word. In Scripture, it's often used as an enticement to sin. Now, you want a good example of that? You remember Matthew chapter 4. Now, you don't have to go there yet. But in Matthew chapter 4, we have the account where Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Why? Matthew chapter 4, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You remember that passage? Three different times. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe that he was tempted more than just three times. I think that's representative. I think they're very real things that we see there. But I don't think for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan only tried three different times. Three different times we have recorded where Satan comes to him and he says to him, If you'll do this, then I'll promise you something in reward for that. It is an enticement to sin. Temptation. That's the word. Now, in real life for us, let's just bring this back down to the bottom shelf for each of us. I think that that passage in Hebrew says that there is a sin that so easily besets us. I think that refers probably to each of us and our propensity towards sin in a particular area. Now, let me put it to you this way. This is going to come as a surprise to you. Okay, I don't want to shock you or anything like that. I love bluebell ice cream. I know you could never tell that by looking at me, but I love, it's okay to laugh, I, I love bluebell ice cream, all right? Now, I can do without many other things that people call sin, okay? And I'm not knocking anybody or anything like that, okay? Uh, smoking a cigarette, that don't bother me, okay? I used to work in oil field, even used to do that kind of stuff, okay? But it's not just, it's not something I, well, if you light up next to me, I'm not going to say, hey, you got another one. You break out Bluebell, we're going to have us a, a struggle, you and me. All right? At least bring two spoons. You see what I'm saying with that? Okay? Now, what I want you to hear from that is all of us have a particular temptation to which we are more vulnerable. That doesn't mean we're not vulnerable to other temptations. It just means that some of them are really big for us. Others, well, we need to really watch it because they blindside us. And an enticement to sin. Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation. That's one of the ways this word is used in Scripture. Now, with that in mind, there's a second way. We had not gotten to the theological struggle yet, so hang with me here. We'll get there in just a second. But here's the second one. It is not only used as an enticement to evil. It is also used to refer to a trial or a test. Now, particularly, this refers to a fiery kind of trial. In other words, it's not like, oh, I didn't study for this pop quiz. This is like, oh, my goodness, we're all going to die, that kind of test. The word comes out of the Greek language and we pull it into English and we use it a couple of different ways. The root part of it, we use in the term a funeral pyre, P-Y-R-E. You've seen those uh, um, televised kind of funerals usually from the Far East or the Middle East. And somebody dies and they put them on this stack of stuff and they set fire to it and it burns them up. And that's a funeral Pyre, that's the picture of this word, a fiery test. We also pull it in the English to refer to a pyromaniac. 
which also has a term eventually of convict, okay? Somebody who loves to set fire on stuff. That's the root word here. So the fiery trial or a fiery test, same word used to enticement for sin or evil or a fiery test, but this one is uh, tended in Scripture to go towards a more positive kind of thing. Take, for instance, the story over in Genesis. A guy by the name of Abram, who God gives a promise to that says, out of you I will bless you with many nations who will come from you. And so he has a son named, what? Bible trivia time, Isaac, right? His only son, Isaac. Abram is an old man by the time Isaac is born. And so as Isaac begins to mature, God says to Abram, Hey, Abram, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and take him up on the mountainside and sacrifice him to me. That means kill him. Parents, don't get your hopes up. God's probably not going to tell you to go kill your kid, even though you might want to sometimes. God says to Abram, take your son, your only son, And take him up on the side of the mountain, on top of the mountain, and sacrifice him to me. Is that a test? Absolutely. That's a test. And that's a God kind of test. It's this word. The Hebrew, excuse me, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses this word to talk about that. It is a test from God. Now, for us, here's one of the ways we need to hear that. Sometimes God says to us, and I don't believe this is unique to every or a particular individual. I think God does it with all of his children. He says to us, it's time for you to grow up some. And he teaches us to trust him more by allowing us or even moving us into situations that cause us to um, be tested. Here's a good example of that. This is over in uh, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. You don't need to go over there. I'll read it for you real quick. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. The children of Israel are out wandering around, and they're wanting something to eat. And so God says to them this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may... Test them. And we all know the story and how that goes with the children of Israel. It so goes with us. God, I've said this before, hear it very well. God is more interested in your growth and development than he is in your comfort. And he knows that one of the things that grows and develops us the most is when we get to be uncomfortable. And those are tests and trials. Let me give you an example out of my own life. It was a time that uh, our kids were starting to grow up some. They weren't old enough to, you know, for us to kind of leave them on our own. In other words, we were still kind of struggling with some things. We got to this particular point. I had probably eight or nine days till payday. I had a $20 bill in my pocket and just nearly no money in the bank. Effectively no money in the bank. And I had this $20 bill in my pocket and... Uh, that particular morning was a Sunday morning, and I woke up, and I was doing several things, trying to get ready to go to church. And God said to me in no uncertain terms, that $20 is mine. 
not mine, mine. God says to me, that $20 is mine. And I said, God, I'm happy to hold it for you. And God said, no, I think I'll take it today at church. To which I said, now, God, I know that you don't understand. Tell me you hadn't prayed that prayer before. Now, God, I know you, had, you don't understand this, but that $20, let me, let me just inform you because I know you've been busy with you know, world stuff, so let me tell you what's happening with me. That $20 is all we have for eight or nine days, however long it is till payday, and so I don't want it to be gone because I might need it. These children that you gave me keep wanting money. I may need that $20. And God reply to me was... I'll take it today. That was a test for me. That was a trial for me. Because I needed to grow in my ability to trust God, not in $20. That makes sense to you? By the way, some of you sound like going, I still got this 20 in my pocket. He knows it and he's trying to get it. It's not my money. That's between you and God, okay? I'm not trying to get in your pocket. I'm trying to get in your head. Because God says there are times in your life that I'm going to take you and I'm going to jerk the rug out from under your feet because you need to grow. I don't blame you. I wouldn't amen that one either. But that's true. All right? So the same word in Scripture is used as an enticement to sin or as a trial or a test. One is flagrantly negative the other one flagrantly positive and so that's the word that's used here here's your theological dilemma which one does it mean here lead us not into temptation now there is one group of us that would look at that and say well we're praying that god would not lead us into a sinful kind of situation in other words he wouldn't make me Sin. Do you agree with that? Everybody go like this, okay? Well, you can, you can kind of go like, like this, okay? James chapter 1, verse 13. You know that passage? James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So that seems to rule out the first one, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Some of you are feeling this theological tension already and you don't even know that's what you're feeling. James is not wrong, okay? God doesn't tempt you to evil. You can write that down, okay? So does that then mean that when we pray and lead us not into temptation, we're not worried about God leading us into a situation where we might choose to sin? And your silence is underwhelming to me up here today, okay? Do you feel the tension in this just a little bit? Let's take another step with it. You see, if the, if the other one is true, God, don't lead me into a situation where I'll be tried or tested in my faith, that also violates what we know to be true in Scripture. Hello? And look at the time. we got to go. So, what do you do with this? 
This is a good time for us as God's children, okay? To realize, listen, you need to be a responsible student of the Bible. Don't just rely on radio preachers or preachers in real life like today or teachers who do video curriculum and that kind of stuff. You be a student, okay? Now, one of the things that I want to do on a continuing basis as your pastor is to hand you Bible study tools that will help you with situations like this, okay? So let's look at a couple of things here and see if we can't deal with the tension here just a little bit. I happen to believe that this prayer, lead us not into temptation, actually refers to both of these definitions. Let me see if I can flesh that out for you just a little bit. Now remember what we're doing. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. This is not a prayer to be memorized and recited, although that's okay to do that, but just don't do it mindlessly. This is a prayer that is intended to teach us how to have a balanced prayer life in our prayer lives, not just a single prayer instance. So with that in mind, several things come to play here as Jesus. I think, again, I think it means both. I think our prayer is don't take me into a situation or don't lead me into a situation. Don't deposit me into a situation where you know I'm going to fall. That's a fair prayer. But I also believe it's a way for us to pray. Now, God, I don't really want to have to go to the testing stuff either. By the way, the back end of this prayer and deliver us from evil has something to say about how we take it. We'll come back to that in just a second. So here's the both part. First of all, in Matthew chapter 4, back to that. You remember Jesus, the temptations and all of that? Hello? All right. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says this in the ESV. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan or by the devil. Full stop. Think for just a second. Why was Jesus in the wilderness? We already talked about the three temptations, right? Why was he in the wilderness in the first place? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Read it. Why was he in the wilderness in the first place? Because the Spirit led him there. Whose Spirit? The Holy Spirit. So does God lead us into situations where we have the opportunity to sin? Be careful how you answer that because if you say no, then you're either denying verse 1 of chapter 4 or you're denying that Jesus was actually tempted. The scripture says both are true. He was really tempted. He had the real opportunity to choose wrongly and to sin against God in the wilderness temptations. And he was out there in the first place because the Holy Spirit led him there. If it's both of these, there was that testing part of this for Jesus, but there was also that very real opportunity for him to make the wrong choice and to sin and therefore to undo all of God's plan of salvation. Praise God, he didn't choose wrongly. But there's the picture for us. You have the opportunity because the Spirit will put you in situations that are tests for you and trials for you and you'll have the opportunity to make a choice and your choice can be sinful or right. 
So the prayer part of this that I think Jesus is pointing to here is he takes all of that possibility, he lays it before us, and he says, you pray that God doesn't get you in over your head in the tests. Knowing that you have the very real opportunity to choose wrongly. Luke chapter 22. I think we have this one for you. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus on the way to the cross. And he got this ongoing conversation with Simon Peter. You know, Simon Peter, here I am to save the day, underdog kind of thing. But listen to what Jesus says to Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Let me just stop for a minute. Let's do a little application. Leave that up there for now, if you will, Spencer. Let's stop for a second. There's another point in Scripture where Satan demands to have somebody. You remember where that is? Job. Scripture says of Job, he's the most upright man on the planet at that time. So here's a good question for us to take home. This separate sermon, okay, but I don't mind interrupting myself. Are you at a point in your Christian life where Satan even acknowledges that you're a threat? Why do you think that Satan would want to have Simon Peter? Well, read the book of Acts, maybe the first half of the book of Acts, and see if there's not some answers in that. The key leader among the disciples, the key leader in the early life of the church. And Jesus gives this insight into spiritual warfare for us, and he says, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. My goodness, what a horrible way to be acknowledged for your spiritual depth. Very possible that today, sitting in here, you're one of those people that right now, in the courtroom of heaven, Satan is saying, I want to work him over. I want to work her over because she's a threat to my kingdom. Are you that person? That's a challenge to me. Because my suspicion about me is, probably Satan doesn't even need to worry about me. Because he knows that I'll self-destruct. Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, listen to this, that he might sift you like wheat. I think that's one of the most ominous verses of Scripture in all of the New Testament. That Satan might actually take note of you or of me and say, I'm going to pound them into the ground because they threaten my kingdom there. But Jesus goes on, but I have prayed for you. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, that's an incredible truth right there. As much as Satan might love to have his way with you, Jesus says, I got you back. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you hear test written all over this? Do you see in this that Simon Peter is about to go through a test? By the way, we know the story. We look backwards through the cross and through the resurrection and the cross and we see the story and we know that Simon Peter was put in a situation where his faith was tested and he had the opportunity to choose evil. And what did he choose? 
By the way, how did he get into that position in the first place? (laughs) Jesus said to him, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. See, this is a both thing. And lead us not into temptation. Don't put me in a situation, an arena where I cannot be successful in this thing called the Christian life. Notice what Jesus says. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Oh, by the way, it will. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How do you think Simon Peter walked away from that discussion? And God says to you and to me, you have the very real capacity to make a dumb choice. And your prayer life has to acknowledge that. We'll get to some of these implications in just a second. There's another thing I want you to get from all of this. See, I think I used this term just a few moments ago. This points to an arena. For those of you who know Greek, the way this is written, this verse 13 back in uh, chapter 6 again, the way this is written takes a preposition that means into, I-N-T-O, and it stacks it on top of each other. Uses it twice and they're stacked on top of each other. Once it's used as a pure preposition, another time it's attached to the verb, which intensifies it. And that all comes together to point us to a spatial, S-P-A-T-I-A-L, a space kind of situation. Think of it this way. There is this arena and we all live our lives out in this arena and that's the arena where this temptation occurs. That's why I chose the title for the sermon as you see it up on the board. And that's also why we chose that particular picture. Teresa and I were sitting out in our swing the other day. Now, why? Why were we sitting out? It's 431 degrees with 9,000% humidity. And we're sitting out in our swing in the backyard. And we're there because... She asked me to sit out there with her. And as we're sitting there, we're talking, and as is the regular occurrence in my backyard, well, actually not my backyard, but above my backyard, this plane comes flying over. I guess Lumberton is on the approach to Intercontinental Airport or something, because we get these planes flying over all the time. Either that or they're government planes and they're spying on my house trying to figure out what's going on there, okay? Not that I'm paranoid or anything. So these planes come over all the time. I want you to picture that for a minute, okay? Teresa and I are sitting out in the backyard on this swing, and it's hot. And we're thinking through some and talking through some of the things going on in our family life. This week, my cousin passed away, and first of the cousins that died. And so I spent a day in Houston helping to bury her over there and... Uh, so, you know, that was part of our discussion, other things going on. And, and uh, so we're just sitting there and all the drama of life is sitting in that uh, swing with us. We're processing through all that stuff and this plane comes flying overhead. Now, what do you think the temperature was inside that plane? It was not 9,000 degrees like it was inside that swing, all right? And I thought about that. Man, those people are sitting up there, people walking by saying, could I get you something to drink, sir? 
you know, you turn on the, the blower on there, you know, the air conditioning thing on you if you get a little high. We're sitting out there, can't do anything about all of the drama, and they're up there just flying over and everything's great for them. Now, I know that they have their own drama in their lives, but the picture I want you to get is in the arena of life where all of the cares of life press in on us and push in on us, that's where we pray. And Jesus uses some terminology and some syntax and all of this stuff. And the way he says it for us is, God, lead me. Well, I'm saying it in a positive sense. Instead of the, don't lead me into the garbage, take me over the top of it. Does that make sense? And so the picture of this part of prayer is that on an ongoing basis, we recognize that all of the stuff of this life has the very real capacity of pulling us away from him when he intends those things to draw us to him. And so the prayer is, don't leave me in the hot water. If I get in it, that's the second part of the verse. What's the second part of the verse say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the same as that thing with Simon Peter. And when you have returned... In other words, he knows we're going to blow it. It's a great word, but deliver us from evil. The word deliver is a great word. It has a violent nature to it. The word picture is to snatch out of. I was watching a movie not too long ago. It has to do with the Coast Guard and these rescue swimmers. And the picture is in the garbage of this crisis down on the water, the Coast Guard guy comes down in and he snatches the person out of the jaws of death. That's the picture of that word. So our prayer on a regular basis is, God, take me over the top of the garbage. Don't put me in a position where even though it's trying my faith, I'm going to choose wrongly. In other words, don't take me too far beyond what I can deal with. But when I fall, snatch me out of that garbage. I love this verse because it gives me, it gives me hope that God's not going to take me too deep. But even if I make the wrong choice, he's going to take me out of the garbage. Let me tell you something. I'm a master at bad choices. Just like you. So as we come to this, here's basically what I think we get. This petition acknowledges the sphere of influence that temptation has. You realize that you can be in over your head. You know what I want us to hear from that? This world, Satan, is a master at camouflage. Just once... I'd like to talk to somebody who's thinking about doing drugs for the first time and have them ask me, you know, you did this. How did it end up for you? We we don't go there. Because when temptation hits, the lure for us is tied to that thing that Dr. Fish used to say, sin thrills and then it kills. We don't want to go to the kill part of it. We just go for the thrill part of it. 
Just once I'd like to hear somebody say, you know what, I was thinking about going out. My buddies are smoking dope. I'm going to go out with them. I'm going to smoke a little bit of dope. Uh, what do you think about that, preacher? Listen, I'm the guy who was stuck with a needle stuck in his arm thinking he was going to die. Don't do it. It looks great before you start. But at the tail end of it all, it's just death. It's isolation and death. By the way, that's not just drugs. That's every part of life. Sin thrills us. But you don't have to live down in that arena. I'm not saying you don't have to worry about sin. You do. You'll always have to worry about that here. But you don't have to choose to sin. And I think that's what this prayer is all about, or this part of the prayer is all about. We have to acknowledge temptation's sphere of influence and ask for God's involvement. You see the difference between saying, God, I'm in a mess here and I need your help. That's where I started. That's the guy hanging from the telephone pole in his effective prayer. But there's a difference between that and saying, God, don't get me up on the pole in the first place. So a couple of implications. I'm done. I'm just going to just lay these out here for you because I think these are a little more practical in how you can move forward. How do you have this kind of prayer in your life? You have to first desire to live in position with God. That's where this prayer started. That's where this prayer has always been. That's where this prayer ends, positioning with God. Secondly, you have to have an awareness of and an acknowledgement of your own personal weakness. If you like Bluebell, stay out of the frozen food section. Doesn't that make, that's, that's so common sense, it's dumb for me to say it, right? Walmart knows that. They put that sucker, that part of the deal, right up front. If you want anything else in the grocery part, you've got to go buy the Bluebell. You know why? Because they know I'm coming. You've got to acknowledge the fact that you need help. But you see, that goes against the I am God part of us. And then finally, you've got to have a commitment to change. You know what? Don't be satisfied with being a failure when it comes to sin in your life. Do better. <laughs> I was playing, Terry Brown stuff. I was playing a video game one time online, okay? Yes, I was. I was horrible. I mean, horrible, horrible. And this, these snotty-nosed college kids, where's Scott? These snotty-nosed college kids. On online gaming, these college kids skip class all day and play all the time on your dime, okay? So when old people like me get on there, they just, ra- just, just take us all, they just kill us, right? And so I'm playing this, and it's horrible. And this college kid tells me, you need to be better. Yeah, well, I got a job. How's that sound? <laughs> it's a great message for us in spiritual truth. Be better. Don't just settle for sinning. That's what Jesus is saying. As our prayer lives need to reflect a proactive positioning that says, I don't want to keep doing badly. Help me, please. But when I blow it, snatch me out of evil. Aren't you glad Jesus gives us a clue on how to pray? 
Let's pray. I want you to find yourself in this sermon today. Are you one who, when you talk about prayer, all you can really think of are those kind of pat prayers that are, you know, used at mealtimes and those kind of things? Or is prayer a vibrant part of your life that moves you closer to the heart of God every day? Does your prayer work? It's bottom line. We've been in it a long time. Summer is nearly past. So, Father, we ask you to help us to be better, to do better. In our best days, we blow it. But we're tired of that. We long for that relationship with you that you paid so highly that we could have. So often we treat it as if it's just another religious thing that we have. But inside our soul cries out to you because we've been deluded by the enemy. Help us to be better. To do better. And help us to find that the key to that is to find your heart. As you grow us and as you teach us and as you expand our faith, Father, today we just ask you to help us to run to you away from those situations that serve to beat us down and to separate us from you. Lead us not into temptation, but when we fall, deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom. The power for living. The glory for all of eternity. You call us your children and we are so grateful. Father, I know in this room today there's got to be many of us who are confronted afresh with the sin of our lives and our own move to be God. We pray that you forgive us for that. Give us hearts that break over our sin and run after you. Father, is there anybody here today who doesn't know the forgiveness that you give us through Jesus Christ? I pray that today would be the day when for the first time they sense and they experience and they appropriate your love. Come into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Please move among us in a way that we cannot deny the need to move towards you, to respond to your call. We pray these things in Jesus' name.